0: I am Pastor Kenneth Olusaya of the Vivified Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Praise the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Hallelujah. Amen, amen, amen. Glory to Jesus, what a time we just had in prayer. And so precious Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege to be here this evening, committed to your word, committed to your truth, ready to learn, to have our minds renewed, to have and, and receive instructions to do your will on this earth. Lord, I pray, let the power of your spirit and the transformation of your word truly help us bear fruits that we will be doers of your word and not just hearers alone, that our profiting indeed will appear to all, that our joy will be intact, that our faith will be intact, and that our hope will be alive in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you in Jesus' mighty name we have prayed. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. How are you doing this evening? I hope you're well. Take a virtual high five from me, free of charge. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, just celebrate someone right now in the chat. Tell them how much you love them and how excited you are about service this evening. Glory to Jesus. Man, I'm so pumped. I think this teaching um, that we're about to have it's gonna be one of the short tests, I hope. Uh, not, I mean, anyways. <coughs> oh my scorners and scoffers. In the name of Jesus, receive healing for your cuffs. Amen. In Jesus' name. <laughs> Whatever it's on your own. This is going to be one of the shortest ones because, I mean, we're going to cover just 11 verses this evening. (sighs) Even at that. But then again, I'm excited because of the content here. There's so much to unpack. And and I love it so much. Um, And I'm sure you will as well. And when I was studying, I was just reminded of an example, a situation that happened uh, many, many years ago. And this was, what? Where was I? This was probably two thousand and maybe two thousand and ten. How old was I then? I won't tell you, so you don't do the math. Uh, but I was, I was still in secondary school then. And I remember one morning. I, w- I, mean, I'm sure you can all relate. If you can't relate, I don't know, I don't know what happened in your childhood. But like, I woke up, and everywhere was quiet. I was like, hmm. My brother was not there. I came out. Mommy! Mom, Ma- Mommy! <laughs> Daddy! <laughs> Family! <laughs> ah! Daddy. And the worst thing is that the day before, I think, I or two days before, I'd watched this movie, Left Behind, part two had this 3 parts series. I think they're still doing more, even now. I had watched it, and guess what I was thinking already? I had thought the worst. I, I am... <laughs> Nobody's at home. What does that mean? I'm, obviously, I didn't make the cut. I, I, I remember that day. I was so frustrated. I went out of the compound, went out of the gate. I checked. The, like, the cars were still around. <laughs> like, the cars were in the compound. Everything was intact. And then to, to worsen the situation, I went to my mom's room, and I saw an outfit just on her, on her, <laughs> on her bed, just like that. Those are the clothes. I said, hey, you don't have phone." Ah, God, God, I begged you. God, I begged you. And maybe some of you, another case I remember, I was in just one. I can't forget this one. <laughs> and that was the phase where the whole Illuminati trend was, was raining, Everybody's calling out this person. This person is Nazi. See the signs they're doing, yada, yada, yada. And I was also caught up in the craze. And one time we're in class, I can't forget, we're about to have CRK, Christian Religious Knowledge. And as before, the lady came into the class to teach, it was getting dark. The clouds were gray, pra- clouds were pregnant. It was, he- it, was, it was going to be a very heavy storm. And there was this loud thunder. And then guess what I did? <laughs> I stood up, I said, Guys, I think, I think we can all agree we know what is happening. Like, let's just, let's just in case. Can we just pray together so that God will forgive us of our sins? Can we pray? I am not joking. This happened. This actually happened. And we held hands, some of us. Some of us didn't care. But the other guys, we're there, we're praying, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us so we will not be left behind. In the name of Jesus, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Ah! Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Please, Lord. I can't forget. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And subconsciously, it is possible that some of you have had these experiences. And not only, not only that, you've carried them into your present reality. There's sometimes this subconscious scare. This subconscious fear that somehow you might not make the cut. When the roll is called up yonder, you might not be there. But I want to show you a beautiful scripture. I love the scripture with all my heart. It's in Philippians chapter 3. This is just by way of introduction and a follow-up from last week's teaching. How many of you are blessed by last week's teaching? How many of you remember last week's teaching? Glory to God. Powerful stuff. Homecoming. Uh, so, Philippians chapter 3 from verse 20. Are you there? Oh, this will bless you. I'm going to read till verse 21. So, it says this. In KJV, it uses another terminology, but I'll use the simpler version. I'll use NKJV to make it easier. It says, for our conversation is in heaven. And when you read it from NKJV, it simply says, for our citizenship is in heaven. So, conversation actually means citizenship. That means what, what you have relationship with in terms of your citizenship. That's the actual correct word. So it says, For our citizenship is in where? Heaven. It's in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior. This, this heaven is where we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and there's so much to unpack from this, At first, he says, your citizenship is where? You belong to heaven. If you believe in Christ Jesus, your citizenship is where? You are a citizen of heaven. Stand sealed, delivered. Or almost delivered, anyways. Mm -hmm. The delivery is when he comes back. But this is the point. He says this, verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body? I talked about this last week. 1 Corinthians 15. You see it again in 2 Corinthians 5, where there's a transformation. You live in a tabernacle, but there will be a time where there will be a new dwelling place. This is the language here. Your body will be changed and conformed to the likeness of his own glorious body, according to the working by which he is even able to subdue all things to himself. I love it. But there's a phrase there in verse 20. He says, we eagerly wait. That is the disposition of the believer who understands what the day of the Lord signifies. There is an eager expectation. I just can't wait. The language is called Maranatha. Come, Lord, we are ready and we are waiting. But that is beautiful news. If there's anything you must remember, where the fear of what happens when the Lord shall come, will I make the cut? Remember, the scriptures say that your citizenship is in heaven. One of the things I love to do most in the world is traveling. Sometimes it can be stressful, but I just love it. Especially if I have to travel to a place I've never been to before. It's exciting. But there's something about taking flights that just, I, 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 the, the picture of the, of the coming of our Lord is sort of, it's like this. So you book your flight sometime next week, for example. For you to get access to the place you're going, what do you need? You need your visa right? Or some of you just magically go to wherever. Anyways, maybe some of you that have dual citizenship, I celebrate you. Uh, But look, (laughs) you need a visa to get to where you're going. To hop on the flight, you need what? A ticket as well. And of course, a passport to identify you. The Spirit, if I would use anything, is your passport. He's the one that, that gives you your identity. He is the down payment for what is to come. The Bible says he's the down payment for all that you are to inherit. Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 to 14 says that. So there is, there's something you have. Then you also have access by the spirit. You have the visa as well. And you have your ticket in hand. What you are waiting for now is your flight. Are you with me? Yes. And if, you know, someone gives this analogy that even if somehow you are in a strange country, which we are in actually, the Bible says we are sojourners on this earth. Even if we are deported, We are going back home. And if deportation means death, that's what it is. No matter what happens, you have access to this place called heaven. Can you say, I have access access to this place called heaven, which is my home, home, in which I will reign with the Lord for all eternity. Hallelujah. Say, my citizenship citizenship is in heaven. heaven." I I have access. That was close. I have access in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. I want you to remember that you belong with the Lord. When he's coming back, he's coming for you because you are a child. Like I said, when he comes back, he knows who belong to him. And you will not be left out. I have that confidence. I think it's okay to say that. Some people might call you proud, arrogant. How dare you think that you you are are 100% into heaven. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's the language of the scriptures. I see that. Even with the writer of Hebrews, he has this confidence he speaks. He said, I, I believe better things about you as pertain to salvation. Hebrews 6 and 9. Like there's this confidence that I know about you. Everyone else I can't, I don't know but you. Uh uh-uh. uh. I will see you on the other side and we will celebrate for all eternity. Hallelujah. And that's my confidence as well. So turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, from verse 1. And we're going to see how fast we can cover this. Um. The title of this teaching is People of Light. And you're going to know why um, that is very soon. People of Light. Glory to God. Glory to God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, from verse 1. Just to give you um, something to look forward to, I'm still trying to figure out how we're going to do the rest of this chapter because from verse 12 downwards to verse 28, it is a barrage of information. Like every verse can be its own teaching of its own. So I'm trying to see if we can rush through those 17 verses next week or we have to space it out till continuously. We should space it out. I'll think about it. I, I want to make sure we have at least two times or two services where we can adequately prepare for church, for the planting of church. There's some things I need to teach before we even start the whole teaching series when we start. So um, so I'll figure it out. But just, just, just let me know if you want to share, if you think, you take our, our sweet time with it. I'd would, I would love nothing more than to do that. All right, First Thessalonians chapter five, from verse one. Are you ready? Are you excited for the word of God? Yes, sir. Glory to God. Hallelujah. All right, let's go. It says this again. I'm reading from the NKJV, so follow along. It says, "But concerning the times and the season, not time and seasoning. If your Bible says that, you are hungry, brethren. You have no need." that I should write to you. And <laughs> I remember just something came to my mind, and that's a terrible thought. You know, when, <laughs> when I saw this, the first answer, you know, those, um, you know how people can be nasty, um, but the thought just came that, as he said this, that you have no need that I should write to you. The thought just like, so why are you writing to us? Like that snap back, like, okay, you're, you don't want to write, but you're writing. And the reason why I feel Paul does that a lot, where he says it, he has said it countless times across the you need not that I write to you concerning this, but, right? And, and that's just to bring to remembrance the things they ought to know already. Just so you know, the things he's saying, this is not the first time he's telling them about the hope to come, but this is a the time they need it the most. And so I love that Paul sees the necessity. That's the work of a teacher. That, yes, I've said this time and time again from the very first time I taught a person five years ago. You still need those words now because there's a peculiar set of things that you're facing that this word is relevant to help with. Does that make sense? So he's saying, I don't need to write this, but I I want you to understand this. And what he's trying to do is inform them about the timeline of salvation, the things to come. Um, There's a discipline in theology that is called eschatology, E-S-C-H-A, tology, right? Eschatology. It just simply means the study of the end times or the last days. What is going to happen? And, and when we talk about last days, ideally from scriptures, last days comes from the, from the procession and the advent of the Holy Spirit post the ascension of Christ our Lord. So when you're seated at the right hand of the Father and the Spirit descended upon us um, to indwell us and infill us, Um, the the last days started so but even more than that what happens beyond this life when the lord returns that's still last days um one thing i've realized about this is that to be fair i've not really ever seen two believers believe the exact same things when it comes to eschatology except they decide to believe the exact same things and agree but hardly would you ever find that happen and and it's okay because the truth is when you talk about eschatology you are not just talking about what is in the epistles. You are talking about the prophecies to come and revealed to John, the beloved, right? And a lot of it is mysterious. A lot of it is symbolic and prophetic, and no one can really say for a certain and dogmatically that this is what this is. And so we have to be careful, and that's why we have nuances to our um, interpretation and and all of that, and that's fine. But the point is, when it comes to eschatology, we must have the most important. Elements, the most essential elements of their eschatological um, worldview, we need to have that in place. It needs to be aligned. We need to have that in common. And so you're going to see some of that there. Whether you are premillennial, where you believe that there's going to be a 1,000 year reign before the Lord takes his people, or it's postmillennial, or you're amillennial, or you're pre trib post tribulation whatever your belief system about it is and we are so many we, we just like English we like to divide ourselves in so many ways oh my goodness why, why are human beings so complicated you know um, something Andrew Mark always say, says it takes you to make things God makes simple complicated and it's true we've made a lot of things complicated but the point I'm trying to make is there are some things that we can all agree on that will happen we believe that the Lord died for us and he was raised from the dead yes we believe that he is coming back again for his chosen and, and, and bought possession. Yes. yes. We also believe that the dead in Christ are not destitute. They will not just see corruption. They will rise first and we will meet them in the sky. Yes. yes. We believe that in the twinkling of an eye we'll be transformed and this body of corruption will be dropped off and we will take on a body of incorruption. Yes. yes. And we believe we will reign with the Lord for all eternity. Yes. And when he judges the world, the living and the dead will be judged unto righteousness and not unto condemnation. Yes. Yes. We'll receive the reward of the actions and the words that we've done in his name out of his love. And we'll celebrate that with him, with his holy angels. Yes. Yes. Hallelujah. Simple. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. All the complexities, we can can decide to do that in one special class, right? And I have so much to say about this, but we have done studies on eschatology. I do it every single year and for the past seven years. I'm not saying I know so much, but I know enough. But if your reference point for eschatology is left behind, I am sorry for you. You need to, you need to drop that. And this is not a shade to them. This is a rebuke, a public rebuke of the people who put that together. It was me- I believe it was meant to be entertaining beyond just doctrinally accurate. And so please refuse those ideas. When the Lord returns, there's not going to be, ah, mommy, daddy, where are you? Everybody will know. The Bible says it. Everyone will see the sign of the Son of Man when he returns. Those who believe will rejoice. Those who don't will fear and be afraid. And that will not be you in Jesus' name. Verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And here day of the Lord is, you know what that is, right? The rapture, as we call it, the day the Lord will return. And the, th- and the phrase thief in the night, what does that mean? you have an idea? It simply means something that is unexpected, something that takes you unaware, something that is sneaky. There's no thief in the night that says, hello, hey, Mr. Olusoya, my name is Beru. I uh, will coming to your house tonight, 8 p.m. Please make sure you're on time. Eh, Want to rob all your property. Thank you, sir. God bless you, sir. I'm coming with a gun, by the way, just so you know. Uh, okay. Yeah, cool with that. Okay. All right, thanks, thank you, sir. God bless you, sir. Buk <laughs> If that happens, that would be so cute. But it, that's not how thieves operate. It is unexpected when you least um, anticipate it to happen. And so he's talking about it, like the day of the Lord comes, the nature of it is such that it's unknown. And, and that's what the scripture says in Matthew chapter 24 from verse 36, it says, But of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the the angels of heaven. It's when the father blows the trumpet, um, you know, and and makes that sound. The angels get to work to gather the saints. So um, that's why it's unexpected. And for us, the, the fact that it's unexpected is not a reason for us to fear. We are already citizens of heaven. But the reason why he's writing this is there's still some work to be done. Yes, you are a citizen of heaven, but there's something to do to prepare yourself for that day of the Lord, and we're going to get to that very quickly. Verse 3. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant. What a description upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. He's saying, look, people will live their lives thinking that they're they living their best life. There's security. There's safety. There's, this is just the best time to live, be married, to marry and drink and die. And, and all will be well. Like, this is just the mentality. And I've lived in one of the safest places in the entire world. I'm talking about a place where to reserve your seats. Maybe you want to use the bathroom. The, the first thing that comes to your mind to reserve your seat is your wallet and your phone. I am not kidding. And you will go to the bathroom, you will come back, and you will meet it intact. Nothing touched. That's the society. I'm talking about society where 10-year-olds are going to the supermarket by themselves, knowing that they will come back home safe and sound, unhurt. <laughs> hey, there's security. There's peace in that place. I'm talking about Dubai, by the way. But the point is this. That there are systems of security and peace that we have tried to set up in some societies, maybe some more developed societies in the world. But no one is safe if they don't believe. And and there's a language, it says, that, that, that sudden destruction comes upon them. There's a group of people Paul is talking about as them. And we cannot just insinuate we know who we're talking about. We can assume. But when we go to the next verse, you're going to get it. But before we do that, let's see this. He's saying there's going to be sudden destruction and they will not escape. And that sounds very, very daunting. Matthew chapter 24 from verse 29 to 31. Let's check that. I want to show you something there. Matthew chapter 24 from verse 29 to to 31. It's a very apocalyptic chapter of the Bible. Some about some um, prophecies that would happen in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that Solomon built. But more importantly, there was... Uh, a segue into the last days, when the Son of Man returns. And you see that from verse 29. Are you there? Yes, sir. Beautiful. Um, He says this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, um, and tribulation, I wish I had time to unpack the idea of tribulation. When you talk about the tribulation of the last days, we're not talking about some three and a half years, plus three and a half years, which is the common doctrine that was popularized by a man called Darby from the, I think 1970s, 1980s. It became very popular. and That's what translated into the left behind theology, um, where we, oh, after the Lord comes, he takes his people. Then you stay on the earth for seven and a half years. You avoid the mark of the beast. You will not be able to buy food in the supermarket if you don't have this mark of the beast. That's why many people start talking about you know, the COVID vaccine. Um, as the mark of the beast and 5G and all those conspiracy theories, which I believe are, for lack of a better word, inaccurate. Um, and so this is not the case. Like the tribulation is happening right now. I hope you know that. Like in the time when Paul was writing this, he was writing to a people suffering what great tribulation. I hope you know that. So it's not, oh, we are in a cool time, we are lounging, and thankfully maybe you're in a place where the religious antagonism and extremists from terrorist groups is not as extreme in that place, and you feel safe. There are people right now in North Korea who are hiding from the, from the, from, from the, the government. They are being punished for their faith, even up until death. There are terrorist groups attacking Israel right now at the Gaza Strip. It is real like there's actual persecution all over the world When Boko Haram herdsmen and all these things you hear. Is <laughs> All right. So Matthew chapter 24 from verse 29 to 31, I think that's where we stopped. I'm going to st- you know start there again. I've been talking for a long time but oh man, I've been <laughs> but it's fine. We'll go over it again. It says immediately after the tribulation of those days and I was talking about the tribulation we should expect. We're not talking about some seven-year period after the saints have already gone, and if you're able to endure that t- seven-year tribulation, the Lord will now have another third coming because you were faithful for those seven years. You do not take the mark of the beast or COVID vaccine or 5G, whatever, and then God takes you again at the third coming. There's no such thing like that. So the tribulation has begun. The tribulation of the last day is happening across the world, in North Korea, in, in Gaza Strip, with Boko Haram, with herdsmen, in, in, in place, even, even broad daylight persecution, in places where people are silenced for freedom of speech, where they can't talk about their faith openly anymore. Like, the tribulation is happening. So don't you, for one second, because you're in a demographical or, or geographical area where you can speak freely, you're not, you're not having a gun to your head, at any time, don't think that the persecution and tribulation has not started. But after the tribulation of those days has happened, and, and the Lord will shorten the tribulation for the sake of his elect, the Bible says, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its lights. It's giving Stranger Things vibes. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken principalities or powers, rulers, everything, shaking with this grand appearance, that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And that's what I was saying, that if all the tribes of the earth will mourn, then it tells you clearly the whole world will know. It's not going to be some mystery. Ah, people's clothes just falling up and down. Ha. Huh? Is it an alien abduction? What's going on? How, how are people vanishing? It won't be a mystery. If you were sleeping, you will wake up. <laughs> if you were dreaming, you will stop your dreaming. Everybody will see the sign of the Son of Man appear. It will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And that speaks you know, to people who um, are not in the faith. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will, they will gather together his elect. If you are in, I'm not going to crack this joke again. <laughs> <laughs> but the joke I cracked before was that if you, are in ele- if you studied electrical engineering, you have a better chance, just maybe. Because he's ele- elect. Amen. You're not you're elect elect. Two elects Ah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. And then he will gather you from the four winds of the earth, northeast, east, west, and south, from one end of the heaven to the other. That's how it's going to be in those days. And the language he says is like, see, it will come as a surprise to the world. It will be daunting. They will mourn. That peace and safety you had, it will just seemingly vanish in, in, in the span of a breath. Verse 4, I'm going to have to read faster now. He says, but you, brethren are not in darkness. So clearly, clearly there's, a, there's a contradistinction between the audience he's speaking. I said it again. When you're going to biblical hermeneutics, it is very important that you know how texts are interpreted. There's something called the four A's which we roll out. The author, the audience, and the aim. And so part time you need to be clear. Who is Paul talking about here? In verse 3 he says that destruction will come upon them. And they shall not escape. Who is them? Who is they? It's not just their pronouns, by the way. He's talking about a group of people. And here he says, but you, brethren. So if he's saying them and you, brethren, clearly he's talking about people that are not part of the brotherhood of the faith, of the brethren. It's talking about unbelievers. So there's a different perspective when it comes to the brethren. He said, but you guys, you are not in the darkness. So that this day will not overtake you like it For you, you'll be different because you'll be prepared. You will not sit and mourn like all the tribes. You will be excited and rejoicing. Knowing that your time has come and your Lord has come. And the consummation of the package of salvation is just here in the twinkling of an eye. Glory to God. This is powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. But I love the way he speaks. He speaks with some, some vote of confidence here. Do you see that? Those of, he says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. So it's not about, there's a confidence with which he speaks. And I think that's how every shepherd should speak to the people. You should have some level of trust that God is able to keep them and preserve them and present them blameless before his throne in glory. And I'll give you an example of another time. Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 38 to 39. This is what he says. There's a the confidence that comes here. It he says, now the just shall live by faith. That's Hebrews 10, 38, 39. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul shall, shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not, look at how he speaks, but brethren, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but we are amongst those who believe to the saving of the soul. There's a vote of confidence there. Prior to that, he said something though. While there's a vote of confidence, no, we're not going to, you're not those people that will draw back, oh, you, I'm confident that my God will keep you as he keeps me, that truly the Holy Spirit is a seal of your salvation, and as you are a citizen of heaven, we will meet just there. But with every vote of confidence must come instructions to live accordingly. That is the biblical framework the framework of righteousness, while there's a confidence, a predictability to salvation, an assurance of salvation, their instructions to prepare us for the, to, to live accordingly to what we are looking forward to. Does that make sense? And I'll give you an example. Hebrews chapter 10, that same chapter, in verse 23, he instructs them, saying, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for his faithful hope promise. Are you with me? Why is he telling them to hold fast the profession of their faith if he's already confident that they will hold fast? That is the language, the biblical framework of sanctification that I know you will make it to the end, but just so you make it to the end, these are the instructions to do. Does that make sense? So So even though he's saying you're not in darkness so that the day of the Lord will take you as a thief, you find out that there are some instructions he starts to give as we go forward, right? But let me just use this as an opportunity to talk about the the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. It's in Matthew 25, from verse 1 to 3. It's a very similar narrative because when you look at the previous, sorry, if you look at the subsequent verses from verse 31, um, you can see the context of what Jesus is saying. He's talking about the judgment that the Son of Man will bring, he will separate the sheep from the goats, right? It's, it's this language of the day and the return of the Lord and the judgment of the living and the dead. So prior to that, he gives the example of some ten virgins, five were seemed to be uh, were deemed to be wise, and four of, and five of them were also deemed to be foolish. And so they were bride brides that were waiting for the bridegrooms um, bridegroom's return. And look at this. I'm going to read it very quickly. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to the ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. and And look, when it comes to this parable, as much as I know certain things, I have to be careful not to be dogmatic. Because compared to some other parables that he shared, our Lord Jesus, he took his time to explain them. The parable of the sword, he he broke it down. This one, apparently, he doesn't do that. All right. And so this is just from the context and from, from the other parables similar to this. That are pertaining to the kingdom of heaven. Um, and that's what we will use to, to talk about. It. But look at this. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, they were not prepared. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So I can't start to tell you what the lamp represented that the lamp represented you know, their life, you know, the oil represented the anointing in their life. Mm, mm. I can't do that. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. See the language here. A cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for you. Our lamps are going out. But the wise said, Saying no, lest there should not be enough for us and for you. And that's why it's very wrong to say the oil was the Holy Spirit. Like, are you saying the Holy Spirit will not be enough? You get, like, just be careful not to over symbolize this. So follow me, right? Um, it says, You know, um, no, that there should not be enough for us and for you. But go to those who sell and buy for yourselves, and you can't buy the Holy Spirit. Um, And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterwards, the virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. You know, ends with a watch therefore. So now this is not a case like um, the other language where it says, all of it, those who say to me, Lord, Lord, you know, I did this for you. I prophesied in your name. And he says, um, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I know you and you know. This is not the same context. In that context, he was talking about false teachers. He had talked about it prior and says, by their fruits, you shall know them. And then he starts to talk about false prophets um, who said they prophesied in his name, but they were not actually his own to start with. So this is different. How do I know? Verse 13 says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So this message amidst the symbolisms and the parable is saying that it is possible for you to be prepared for the coming of the Lord and not to be prepared. For you to anticipate it, be ready for it, and enter into glory, or not be prepared for it and mourn, like we saw in Matthew chapter 24. Does that make sense? And miss out on eternal life in theological sense we are talking about faith if there's anyone who is wise it's someone who actually believes in the lord jesus and by and because of their faith the works follow so that their their faith in christ is followed and topped up or should i say is proven by their works do you understand in their preparation for what is to come if you truly believe in the hope that is to come there's a life style you will adopt. There's a disposition you will have. There's a way you start to act if you truly believe the Lord is returning. Does that make sense to you? Verse 5. I have to be fast now. Verse 5. You are all sons of light. So if you are not of the darkness, guess what? You are children, sons, and people of lights. Say, I am a child of lights. I am a son of light. I am a daughter of light. We are people of light. It says, and we are sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. And now, see, this is not a case of, oh, I'm a morning person. I'm a night person. I like to wake up, but like, you know, I I don't like the morning. I like to wake up like 10. I'm just like, uh." so that means heaven is not for me. (laughs) Of course, don't be petty. That's not what he means. Um, the language of light and day or night and dark is very, very, um, is very symbolic here. I'm going to explain. It. I'm going to dissect it. I'm going to use cross references to help you understand as well. But he's saying we are the people who actually live in the light. We're the people of light. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures and it will make all the sense to you. First John chapter five, chapter. I beg your pardon. First John chapter one, from verse five. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. I want to show you what it means to be a people of light or to be in the light or live in the light. In the light, I beg your pardon. 1 John 1, verse 5 to 7. Are you there? Yes, sir. And I hope I'm still audible and visible. 1 yes. John 1, 5 to 7. Thank you. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light. God is light. Can you say that with me and just process it? God is what? Light. In fact, another scripture says he dwells in unapproachable light. He is light. And in him is what? No darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, so God is not just light, he's also in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ's son cleanses us from all sin. What do you think qualifies one who walks in the light? Who, Who has the answer? Maybe I'll give you a few seconds. Drop the answer for me. What do you think it means? What do you think it means to what, what describes the person or what is the requirement that makes one be a part of the light. If you guessed this right, then I'm sure this is what you meant. This is what you're going to say. It's the one who has fellowship, not just with the Father, but through the Son, the believer in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's clear. It, means, it says if, if, if you walk in the light, then you actually, it means you have fellowship, not just with the saints, but you fellowship with the Lord Um, By the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. Does that make sense? So you are in the light because of your faith in Jesus. Because of your fellowship with the one who is light. Does that make sense? So boldly you can say, I am not of the darkness. I am not of the light. I am of the day. Hallelujah. John chapter 1 from verse 4 to 5. I want us to go here quickly. John chapter 1, from verse 4 to 5. Are you there? It says, In him was life. He has talked about the Word, the Word in the beginning who was with God and who was God Himself. And verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. There was a life that was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. And the word comprehend means to overcome. So it's a light that darkness cannot overcome, cannot overtake. Clearly, if there was life, the life being referred to is new life. Eternal life. True fellowship with God and living for God. Walking in God. Righteous living. That's what this light talks about. I'll show you another one in case you're not convinced. First Peter 2, verse 9. Very popular scripture. I think this is one of the clearest. It will make sense to you. First Peter chapter 2 from verse 9. Are you there? Glory to God. See, it's very important that when you study scriptures, if you're reading, and this is very this is why it's very important to read across so that when a scripture you're reading in a particular book of the Bible. Starts to sound like something else. Go and check it. I mean, the Bible says all scripture was given by inspiration of God. It's saying not just all or, or each scripture, when it says all scripture, the wholesomeness of scripture was given by inspiration of God. God wants there to be coherence in His word, and that's why cross references are very helpful. When it sounds like this, sounds like something I've read before. Go on, are you ready? One, two, go, but you are. A chosen generation. In fact, let's personalize it. We are a chosen generation. One, two, go. But we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that we may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Glory to God. That is your reality. You were translated from darkness, from sin, from death, from decadence. You were brought into life. And you were brought into light. Hallelujah. Salvation experience. That's what makes the difference. You are not in darkness anymore. You are in the light. Say, I am in the light. I am in his marvelous light last scripture I'll give you is Philippians 2.15. I'm getting here. I'm getting somewhere with this. First, uh, Philippians 2 from verse 15 to 16. Okay, I'm going to read very quickly, but open your Bibles with me. It says, That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom, this this perverse generation, generation, among whom you shine as light in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Look at that language here, that when the day of Christ comes, I will rejoice, because even though you are in a dark, decadent, perverse generation, you shined as lights. You took your place and said, I am living for God regardless of what is popular in my day. I will stand as light in my day. And this tells me two things when it comes to light. Number one, when it comes to light, there is sanctity. Sanctity. It's where you get the word sanctification. It means to be, to be called apart, set apart. That's what, that's what Ecclesia, which is church, means. To be called out called out of darkness, to be made holy. Whatever language you want to use, there is sanctity that comes with light. When there is light in a dark place, you will know. It is distinct. It is different. So when it comes to light, there, there has to be a difference. You cannot live the same way everyone in darkness is living because then you're not proving that you are light. Does that make sense? Yeah. Light is distinct and it speaks sanctity. And this is what God expects of us, that in a perverse generation where everyone is living their lives this way, listening to that music, watching those movies, living this way, bribing that person, that we will say, look, we will not be a people of compromise. There is an order of day with the way we should live, and so we will live according to that. We will be distinct. It will be clear that we are different. If you are not detectable and distinct from where you are, then maybe you're just not shining as brightly as you thought. If you shine and take your place confidently, knowing that, look, what come what may, whatever they say, whatever criticism I get, I will stand for the truth. I will stand for the Lord. Then your light will shine and the darkness will not overtake you. Say aloud, loud, amen. And number two, when it comes to light, apart from sanctity, is responsibility. There's now responsibility on you. To not just shine as light and be in one place. But to spread that light across the darkness. To be the standard. To be the light in dark places. To spread and shine. There's now a responsibility for you. That where you go, you you are lighting up streets. You're lighting up hearts. Spreading the light and life of Christ Jesus to a dark world. Those are the two things when it comes to light. Your sanctity that you are set apart, that you don't live like others do. And that's the purpose of this chapter. He's explaining to them a lifestyle to adopt by reason of the new life they have. And there's also a responsibility that comes with it to make sure that we are not just in a dark place and we just shine. There's no pride to just being the only light in a very dark place. We have the ability to spread the light. Hallelujah. But he says we are not of darkness of the night. And darkness characterizes... Um, I mean, sometimes people, when you say light, there's the, illumination. So people talk about knowledge. It's not just ignorance, but it's a state of the heart. An unregenerate heart. A heart that, that prioritizes the works of the flesh. Evil desires. So Paul uses this allusion you know, of thief in the night to, to talk about things that are done with danger and unpredictability. And that's what night represents. It's uncertain, it is, there's danger, there is all of these things. So, this is the charge, and we're going to see what he's saying here. Verse 6. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6. Let's go to the next verse. I have to skip ahead some things, but I'm sure you get the point. Therefore, let us not sleep. <laughs> That's interesting to say. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. And I like the way he he always makes that contradistinction before he says, let us not mourn like others do who have no hope. So now he's saying, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Now you might say, ah, what, why is Paul saying we should not sleep? First of all, which kind of sleep? Is it the one at night that we do when we are tired? Or is it the sleep from the previous chapter where people die? How do we know? You know, the Greek word here for sleep is Cathedro, K A T H E U D O. Some renditions say cathedro men, but that's that's just um, a a different rendition of of the noun. But it, it says this: uh, Let us not sleep. It, it doesn't mean death here, literally. How do I know? First of all, um, the Greek word for sleep in the previous chapter, the one that meant death, was Ko, koim, koimao, that's the Greek word, koimao. And that meant d- to be deceased, to depart from life, literally. So that was not just, you know, sleeping like the average. This was koimao, which meant actual death. And the second reason why I know that's not what he's saying here is because the latter part of the verse clarifies what type of sleep. He says, "But let us watch and be sober." So he's saying the kind of sleep he's talking about is the one that lacks alertness, lacks caution, lacks vigilance, lacks sobriety. Are you following? When he says, "Let us not sleep," it's a figurative term saying, "Don't be careless. Don't live your life carelessly. You say you're in the light, Don't live carelessly. You must be sober alert when jesus tells the disciples watch and pray he knew what he was saying the spirit is willing but the flesh is what is weak when he says watch and pray it's not oh yeah let's watch you jesus and pray watch means to be vigilant in fact this is these are your your, your in your arsenal when you're fighting temptation you must be vigilant what are your triggers what are the things that will easily get you down you easily besetting sins and then pray because your spirit is willing, but your flesh needs to be subdued to the desires of your spirit. Titus 2, verse 11 to 13 explains this also well. I'm going to read it very quickly. Titus chapter 2, from verse 11 to 13. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And what does this grace do? In fact, many times, the way I say it is don't, while we are to encourage people to live godly and, and all of that, the, the work of grace does that. Grace teaches. The grace of God that appears to us teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live how? Like knowing that God has saved you when you didn't deserve it. That message of grace teaches you something that. You should what? Deny ungodliness and what? Worldly lusts. And that we should live how? Come on, guys. We should live how? Soberly, righteously, and godly. When? Later? In this present age. In this perverse generation. In this dark world. To live soberly, righteously, and godly. That is what the grace of God teaches. Not for you to just say, "Ah, there's grace. I can relax." be <laughs> grace covers a multitude of sins, and when there's sin, grace abounds much more. I can do what I want. That is that is careless grace, and that is not grace at all. Grace never teaches you to be careless, to be licentious. It teaches you to depart from worldly lust, from ungodliness, to be more serious, more vigilant. Knowing that God saved you from this sin. And so you cannot live in sin. If you truly were dead to sin, how can you live any longer to it? And he says how and why this is important in verse 13. That you're doing this even as you're looking towards the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Like the more you are, the, the day of the Lord is approaching, this is how you should live even more. As people of light. Does this make sense to you? Yes, sir. Oh, my goodness. God help us. God, by your grace, help us stand. Many of us, we spend so, I mean, what I will call old wives' fables. We spend so much time talking about unimportant things. Ah, what will happen if when the Lord comes, you are found on the bed of adultery? Or you are found on the bed of fornication? What, you are wasting your time and your... Why are you talking about those things? It's suspicious. Why? Why not just remember that we are called out of that? It's not about trying to now gamble. What will happen? Is it that on that last day, if by mistake I now... (laughs) If I want to give an answer to any person, my answer is you are a citizen of heaven. And citizens of heaven act a certain way. Simple. You are heaven-bound but there are expectations of you because you are heaven-bound. He says, even as you are looking forward to that hope, there's a way to live. Amen. Does that make sense? Verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. <laughs> so are you seeing the analogy he's using? We are, we are, we are not the people of the night, and so there's, there's a way we are to act, not to sleep like people who belong to the night. Now he starts to talk more about this and he says and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now there's something he's trying to say here. He's saying those who are careless and and are you know just not alert they do it at night. And the nighttime is is a time where your defenses are lowered and your inhibitions are lowered. If you if you ask anybody who has been drunk What happened when you were drunk? What are the things you did? If they can remember, they will be like, they had no idea that they could not hold themselves from not doing those things. Because when you're drunk, you know, you start to say the things you normally wouldn't say. You start to spill secrets. You start to act out of character. And this is not a good type of drunkenness, like being drunk in the spirit. This is one where you're you're intoxicated with wine, and your inhibitions your your self-control is gone. And that's why when we debate, is it a sin to drink alcohol? The question is not about, is it a sin to drink alcohol? If someone gets drunk with wine, what does that do? Does that encourage the fruit of the spirit of self-control and gentleness and patience? Or does that stir up works of the flesh? That's the real question to be asking. So the nighttime represents darkness Day represents light. The opposite of drunkenness is actually sobriety. If you're sober, then it means you're not drunk, right? So this is not a teaching about the time of day. This is not a teaching about when you should sleep, how you should sleep. It's a teaching about vigilance, about getting your defenses up, about being alert and sober and aware of the tactics of the enemy. When he talks about First Peter which you know very well, First Peter 5, 8, when it says the devil is roaming about looking for whom to devour, it says, be, be sober-minded. Be alert, on high alert. Let your spider and spirit senses be, be tingling when you see those things happen. It's an exhortation to strengthen your defenses and augment your vigilance as we see the day of the Lord approach. And it is approaching... Very quickly, just so you know, fast approaching. It is here. The day of the Lord is here. Verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober. That is the language. Now, you see his analogy. If you are not of the night and of darkness, but you are of the day which is light, then you should be sober. And then he encourages you what to do. He says, "Put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation." I'll talk about that soon, but it just reminds me what what our Lord said in John nine four. He says, "I must work the works of Him who sent me." While it is day, night comes when no man can work. Like the idea of doing the work, like as a person of the day. Do you understand? Like being able to be aware, alert, vigilant, and then. When night comes, where night typifies a time where you're on low alert, still regardless, because of the work you've put in, because of the, the fences you've raised up for yourself, you're able to be ready even in the time of night. Does that make sense? If, if the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night for some, then it means that you yourself will be prepared even when that happens. So when, when they sing those songs, and, I, and maybe you've, you've heard me say that, when we preach the gospel, we're not talking about, will you be ready when the Lord shall come? We should focus on the first coming. But it's still a valid question to those who already believe the first coming. Will you be ready when the Lord shall come? It's a valid question. It's a real question. I agree. Will you be ready? Will you be vigilant? Will you be sober? Would he, will the bridegroom meet a wise virgin of you? Will he meet you prepared? And it's not just that you you are prepared that, oh, you are a good person, you are living a good life. With the preparation comes an eager anticipation. When you look at the language of hope, there's eager anticipation. So don't just judge yourself prepared if you are living righteously, you're doing what God has asked you to do, which is what you should be doing. But you judge yourself prepared when you find yourself eagerly expecting the return of the Lord. You should expect him. You should look forward to it. And maybe it's a, it's a place where you are suffering a lot and you just can't wait. That's also part of the package. But even more so because you want to meet the, the Lord, this person who died for you, whom you've never seen but somehow you love. But now you st- you, you're you going to stand before him. You're going to meet the lover of your faith where faith becomes sight. This is that day and that moment. It's something to look forward to. It's something to rejoice in. You will be with the maker, your maker. And you will receive the fullness of this salvation which has already begun in you. That is something to celebrate and look forward to. Praise the name of Jesus. But now he gives us the armor we should put on. Similar to Ephesians 6, where he says, put on the whole armor of God. Very similar, but this is what he emphasizes, which we started this series with in the first place. He says, put Put on the breastplate. This is an armor of defense. By the way, not attack. An armor of defense. The helmet of hope is also a tool of defense. So he says the breastplate of faith and what? Love. He's making it so easy. Like you think, oh, being sober, being vigilant is a lot of work. I don't even know where to start from. He says this is where you start from. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. Put it here. Let your faith in the Lord be alive. Let your faith in his truth be alive. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. Believe the truth of the Lord. And let love reign amongst you. Love one another. Lay down your lives for one another. This is how you protect yourself. And then the hope of salvation. And that's why I said it's so important. This is how you defend yourself. You look forward to that which is to come. You can endure anything that you go through if there's a joy that is set ahead of you. A hope to see. You can survive almost anything. When you see people who are actively depressed or saddened, Many times, the reason why they're in such a state for a long time is because, is because of hopelessness, really. Like, they can't see beyond that day or that moment. If you're ever able to get someone to leave that space of hopelessness and see that there's a better tomorrow, a better resurrection, a better next week, a better next month, easily, you can help such a person out of that pit. And that's why this is a very important tool to protect yourself. Let your hope be alive. Let your hope be alive. Don't be discouraged. God is with you. Amen. He will never truly leave you nor forsake you. This is how you get ready and prepared for the coming of our Lord. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, I love this, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your your story is different. Your destiny is not wrath. The wrath of God has passed over you once you believed in Christ. Are you with me? When the blood of the Lamb was upon the lintel of your life, the, the, the wrath of God had passed over you. So you are not appointed unto wrath. But you are appointed to obtain salvation. And here it's talking about the fullness of salvation. The fullness of salvation. The consummation of salvation where all of you will be like all of him, where you, in the twinkling of an eye you'll be changed, where the inheritance of the saints that was reserved for you in heaven, undefiled, as First as 1 Peter 1, 1.4 talks about, you'll receive the fullness of that. That is the salvation we will obtain through our Lord Jesus Christ. Say loud amen if you believe it. Your destiny is not condemnation, it is righteousness. Say amen. Verse 10. Jesus, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we would live together with Him. And I'll read two scriptures to just reiterate this. Paul is speaking, Philippians one twenty, and um, this is what he's saying. He's in prison, writing. He's destitute. He's not sure if this is where he will be killed. There's no. There's been no um, sentence given for his um, offenses, anyways. And so Philippians one twenty says. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed with all boldness as always. Now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I love that language. By life or by death, Christ will remain glorified and I'm with him regardless. Verse 21. For to me, to live is what? Christ. And to die is what? Is also gain. I never lose. That is a story of the believer. We never lose. If you are alive to the glory of God, if you sleep also to the glory of God. Verse 22, but if I live on in the flesh, I mean, if they don't kill me somehow, I survive this, this will mean fruit from my labor. I'll make more fruit of you. Yet I shall choose. Yes, what I shall choose. It's almost like he's like, I have a choice in this. I cannot say, for I am hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, and I've been there before. I remember so clearly. I mean, just young in my faith, I just wanted to see this person who had loved me, not in a societal way, more of in a hope at its peak way. I just wanted to see this person, this lover of my soul. Um, and it says, Departing to be with Christ is far better. And of course, there's a context here. 2 Corinthians 5 8, he says, We are confident. Yes well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So again, whether we wake or sleep, we will live together with the Lord. That is guaranteed. That's what he's saying in verse 10. And verse 11, he says this, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. And there's a scripture that just came to mind. I didn't plan to read this, but I think it's super important. We we'll go to Hebrews chapter 10 again. Hebrews chapter 10, from verse 24. Read 24. I'm um, sorry, 24 to 25. 24 to 25. And this is one of the reasons why somehow I feel maybe, just maybe, Paul had a hand in the writing of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, to provoke one another unto good works. You know that scripture, right? Verse 25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. This is what he was saying in First Thessalonians five eleven, To exhort, encourage, edify, comfort one another. As, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching, as you start to feel that, look, ah, with the way things are going, the Lord has to come. Even more so, you strengthen one another. You remind one another of the hope that you have in Jesus. You say, look, the sufferings of now are nothing to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. And then even at that, you put aside your differences. This is not a time to squabble and be petty. You put aside your differences. You focus on what is to come. There's a hope ahead. Are we ready? How can I strengthen you, my brother, so that you are vigilant when you are weak? How can I help you to be more sober? How can I provoke you unto good works? Oh, my brother, the sufferings you're going through now, nothing can compare to the glory you would experience when Christ comes and the rewards he will give you for your faithfulness. At the end of the day, it is hope that brings comfort. And this is peculiar. I want to put this out of, out of its box right now. Now, the current situation here is that these guys were facing persecution. And Paul wanted to remind them how they should live in a time like this. But it also tells us that when there's a specific situation that the, the, the local church is facing, maybe there's something different in that time, we have to address it by comforting one another exhorting and edifying one another, building one another in the faith. Praise the name of Jesus. I hope you've learned something with this teaching. We're going to go more um, in this chapter next week. But with this, all I've said, I want you to remember that you are a person of light. Light cannot be hidden. Nobody has a candle and puts it under a bushel. You put it at the top. You're a city set on a hill. And if you're a lady, you can even be a city set on two heels when you, you're high heels. I'm <coughs> sorry, that was a part joke. But you get the point. I'm <laughs> <No>, sorry. <laughs> the focus is this. Hear me out. You are a person of light. You are distinct. You are sanctified. But you also have a responsibility to live as a person of light. Can you say this with me? I am a person of light. And I live as a person of light. My light so shines before men. And they will glorify the Father in heaven. I will not just stand out in my light. I will not just stand out in my brightness. I will not just stand out in my righteousness. But I will spread it wherever I go. I will spread this light in the dark places. I will be instrumental in in the, city, in the transformation of a city, in this present day and age, can you turn it into prayer right now? Lord, in the name of Jesus, I stand as light and I shine bright. In the name of Jesus, I will spread this light wherever I go as I live soberly and vigilantly in this world. Hey, Jotombra Kalebes, Jotamile Evusula Kaile. Come on pray in the Holy Ghost if you can. and also pray in English. Lord, this is my life. As I see the day approach, I live as lights. Hey, I live as lights. sufa as light as light and the darkness will not overtake me i'm a child of the day a child of the light a child of the one who dwells in unapproachable light a child of god and i live as though i am thank you father In Jesus' name, we have prayed. I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.